I, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, what to teach after sabbatical, and I kept coming back to the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, we spent the past year and a half studying Judges and Samuel. And if you remember this statement at the end of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I suggested to you that that is often the way of the world, right? We do whatever we think is going to make us happy. We do what is right in our own eyes. But God created human beings. God knows how we best operate. He knows what's going to really make us happy. And yet we are busy, the world is busy, rejecting that knowledge. of Who God says we are, how we're supposed to operate, of what life is supposed to be like for us. And I think that's why the Sermon on the Mount is a great follow-up to Judges and Samuel because the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling His disciples this is what life in God's kingdom looks like. This is how you were created to live your life. This is what will make you truly happy. He shows us that the kingdom of God is countercultural. It's not of this world. And Jesus shows us exactly what that means in very practical terms. But i got to warn you that we're not going to like it. Okay, uh, The Sermon on the Mount is not feel-good material in a lot of ways. Uh, in fact, it's probably, I think it's safe to say, this sermon is going to offend every single one of us, me included, Because we live in a time and a place where Christians really don't seem much different from anyone else. And Jesus is going to destroy the notion that such a thing is possible. That His disciples wouldn't look or be any different from the world around them. See, above all things, I think that the Sermon on the Mount is a call to repentance. It is a call to be different. Jesus literally says in chapter 6, do not be like them. Do not be like them. But before we jump to conclusions about them, the people that we're supposed to be different from, It's actually not who we expect. It's two groups of people. The first one we might expect. We expect Jesus to tell us that we're supposed to be different from worldly people, right? From pagan people. Be different from them. And He does tell us that. But He also tells us that we have to be different from self-righteous people. We have to be different from the arrogant religious people of the world. And there's actually a catch. You see, Jesus presents this moral code in the Sermon on the Mount, which you're probably familiar with. And that moral code is one that literally no one can obey completely. No one. Not not one single person 
on the earth can obey the Sermon on the Mount completely except Him. And that's what makes the Sermon on the Mount so brilliant and so timeless. The Sermon on the Mount accomplishes two goals. It shows us, first of all, it shows non-Christians that they can't please God on their own. And secondly, it shows Christians how to please God, but only through repentance and faith in Christ. And what I want to show you today is that Jesus presupposes our need for faith and repentance. As Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul says, this is what faith expressing itself through love looks like. Jesus is showing us that in the Sermon on the Mount. What is faith expressing itself through love look like because people who love and know and trust Jesus are going to receive this information correctly only through the lens of repentance and faith but if you don't receive it that way if you look at this sermon as or through the eyes of an unbeliever or a non-christian then you're going to be faced with a dilemma In his commentary, um, Dan Doriani writes this quote that that y'all have all been looking at for a while now, but it says this, an unbeliever will respond to the Sermon on the Mount either with foolish optimism, saying, I can do this, or with hopeless despair, saying, I can never do this. Only a believer, he says, a child of God can rightly respond to its high standards. And we're going to set the tone for that this morning um, with that long introduction. That was all just an introduction uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin reading in chapter 5. We're going to start with the first nine verses of chapter 5, which are known commonly as the Beatitudes. Um, There are seven, which we will consider today, and an eighth, which we will consider next week. I'm saving that because I think it's a little different from the first seven and actually has more in common with the next part of the sermon. So we're going to look at that next week. But we're going to begin reading Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that is God's word for today. Now, I think pretty much everyone agrees that the words we just read are beautiful words. In fact, people from other religions, even atheists who deny the existence of God, would read these words and find them compelling. 
Jesus isn't really saying anything that anybody on the earth would disagree with, right? He's speaking blessing into the lives of needy people. That's what it sounds like. And in many ways, that's what it is. On the surface, everyone appreciates what we think Jesus is saying here, whether you're religious or not. And we assume we know what the word blessed means. It And you probably do know to be blessed just means to have the approval of God, to have God on our side, so to speak. Right. And it makes sense that Jesus would speak this way about people who are displaying this kind of character. It's not anything really surprising in his words, but there's something more to it than that. What I want you to do is I want you to consider the context Okay, as you've learned in this church, context is important. I'm always going to try to put the word in its context, try to make sense of it. And in the story of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount comes very early in the ministry of Jesus. The first two chapters of Matthew tell us about Jesus' birth and his early childhood. The third chapter tells us about, the, about John the Baptist and about the baptism of Jesus And it's not until chapter 4 that Jesus actually begins his public ministry by calling his first disciples. And then he begins preaching what's called the good news or the gospel, uh, the euangelion in Galilee. And Matthew tells us that the theme of his preaching was simple and clear. Jesus, in all the gospels, the, the basic message is conveyed like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or as Mark says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it makes sense in light of that context, when we get to chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, it makes sense to read the Sermon on the Mount, I think, as a sermon about repentance and faith. Because Matthew just told us that's the message of Jesus. That's what he came to talk about. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so I think the Sermon on the Mount is him talking about repentance and what life in the kingdom is like. Specifically, I want to convince you this morning that the Beatitudes are about repentance. That's what they are. They are displaying for us. The fruit of repentance, which is the character of the Christian life. This isn't seven different groups of people. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to look like and who they are by God's grace. In the same way that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not fruits of the Spirit. This is who we are as Christians. That's what the Beatitudes is, is Jesus showing us that this is what repentance looks like. And I'm going to show you there's even a pattern that emerges here, which I'm kind of excited to show you because we can actually map this out as a circle starting with verse 3. The first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So this idea is poverty of spirit. This is humble dependence upon God. 
This is self-awareness of our sin. This is self-awareness of our need. This is the necessary precondition, according to Jesus, for repentance. And I put it at the bottom of the circle because this is where we come to the end of ourself. This is where we are empty. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. To be empty before God. Second, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, this is not a separate class of people from those who are poor in spirit. This is actually, if you think about it, a really natural progression of the first group. Because if we have an awareness of sin, if we look in the mirror and we see who we are, what does that produce? It produces mourning, right? If I look in the mirror and I see something that I don't like, something that I have no power to change on my own, what is my response going to be? Sadness. And that also is a necessary precondition or... uh, situation in which repentance flows out of. We have to see and then face the consequences of our sin in this world, in our lives. The effects of sin in the world around us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek is is not a word that we use Um, At least I don't use it on a regular basis, right? So I'm going to define it for you. Um, For us, to be meek is to have a proper estimate of oneself. That's what it means to be meek, is to have a proper estimate of oneself. Okay, so if you think about self-esteem, it's not high self-esteem, nor is it low self-esteem. Instead, a meek person is someone who's living with an accurate perception of self with respect to God and other people and the world that God has put you in. Okay, That's what it means to be meek. So according to Jesus, he's saying, if we want life after death in the kingdom of God, then we need, it is required for us to have an honest assessment of who we really are. Now, you can see how the first three are related, right? Repentance begins with this work of humility, this bankruptcy in spirit. We are saddened by what we see in us and in the world. We are humbled by it. We are able to rightly estimate ourselves before it. You see the progression? Number four. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We talk uh, about repentance a lot in our church. I probably mention it probably every week in some, in some capacity. 
And very often I will define it, and you probably have heard me define it this way. It's simply a turning from something and a turning to something. But that turning is an at-the-same-time kind of turning, right? If I were to leave the stage and start walking towards the nursery, towards the back door, the closer I get to the back of the room, the further I'm getting from from the stage, right? At the same time. Those two things are happening in continuity with one another. Turning from sin is turning towards Christ. Turning towards Christ is turning from sin. Those things cannot happen detached from one another. The way God thinks about this in His kingdom, one thing cannot happen without the other also happening. And this is what I want you to see. This is where Jesus is turning the corner of repentance. He's not leaving us in a place where we're focused on self and sin. There is a turning that happens towards Christ, towards righteousness, towards the things of the kingdom. And Jesus strategically places this right in the middle of the Beatitudes, right? This person who is hungering for righteousness is no longer focused on self. The focus has shifted away from self and away from sin towards righteousness. The person starts wanting what God wants for us. Righteousness means right relationships, right living. And so as God reveals our need for these things, we start to hunger for the stuff that we're missing out on. Now, this is where it gets interesting, okay? You've probably heard most of what I've said before, probably. And so far, Jesus has had us focused on each of our personal need for repentance and faith, right? I have been forced to look at myself. He's he's forcing me to evaluate my need. I'm beginning to recognize my personal need for something, for specifically righteousness. But I want you to watch what Jesus does next as we make the turn around the circle. Verse 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now do you see what Jesus just did? He just shifted our focus off of ourselves completely and shifted it towards other people. You see, I can evaluate myself using the first four Beatitudes and I can avoid thinking about other people entirely. Right? Am I poor in spirit? Am I mourning? My sin? Am I meek? Do I have a a right estimate of myself? Do I hunger for righteousness? Right? I can ask those questions alone in my prayer closet, right? I don't have to think about other people at all. But I cannot answer the question, am I merciful, 
without evaluating my relationships? Can I? So do you see the subtle shift that takes place? I have to think about other people. I mean, what does it mean to be merciful? In Bible terms, it means moving towards people who are suffering, right? Mercy has to be shown to someone else. I'm not showing myself mercy, right? And so Jesus is moving us towards thinking about others. And I want to suggest to you this morning that this is what repentance actually does. Repentance naturally leads us toward other people. You see, if by definition, repentance is making us more like Christ Jesus in His character, then we're also becoming more like Jesus in His mission. We're also becoming more like Jesus in how He expresses that character in relationship with the people that He has created. If your repentance is not leading you to have compassion on other people, then it is not repentance. Another way to say that is that Jesus does the work in us on the first half of the circle in order to do the work through us on the second half of the circle. And that these things are connected. Look at the next verse, the sixth Beatitude. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Um, I wrestled with this one. I, I did a lot of research to try to come to grips with what I think this means. And what I think it means is that the person that we see is the real you. The person that the world sees, that the church sees, that your family sees, that your friends see, that your co-workers see, that's the real you. It's not just the you you want them to see, it's the you you, right? It means that the outside you is the same as the inside you. There are no hidden agendas. There are no hidden motives, which is very convicting to me personally. In light of the previous verse, again, the context, right? I think what it means is I'm not moving towards other people. I'm not seeking to be merciful for my sake. I am moving towards others for their sake, or better yet, for the glory of God. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for Him. I'm doing it for you. I think that's what purity of heart means in context. And then we come full circle. Number seven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now I put number seven back at the bottom of the circle. Because this is where repentance ultimately leads us, is it leads us back to the beginning to walk beside others who find themselves also empty before God. It also makes sense because we as Christians never actually graduate from the need for repentance. 
even as I'm seeking to walk beside my brothers and sisters in Christ in their repentance and they're walking beside me in mine, right? Jesus keeps bringing all of us back to the exact same place. In fact, I would argue that this is the chief characteristic of a Christian is this daily life of faith and repentance. If you think about it, Jesus placed hunger right in the middle. How many times a day do I get hungry? At least three, right? At least three times a day in the way we think about food. I mean, I eat three meals a day. Sometimes I get hungry for that fourth meal, right? But how many times a day do I eat? Also, at least three times, right? Am I ever going to outgrow my need to eat? Now, I may need to learn how to eat less. But the day I stop getting hungry as a human being is the day that I'm dead, right? And that's the way God built me. You know, some animals out in the wild can eat like once a month. Not a human. Everybody's not privileged to eat three meals a day, but we're hungry, right? And that's the metaphor that Jesus used more than once to describe our need for God. Hunger. Feed. Hunger. Feed. Hunger. Feed. Hunger. Feed. Every day. Every day. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Jesus. Every day. We don't outgrow hunger. We don't outgrow this circle. And in the end, what it teaches us is that God is always doing as much in us as He's doing through us, right? God didn't do a work and make you a Christian so that now you can spend the rest of your life doing things for Him and and it's all you, right? No. God is daily leading us by His Spirit through the process, repentance and faith, so that we might be useful to Him, so that we might do His work. That's how God designed it, and that's how He gets all the glory for it. Now listen, Jesus, this is just the introduction, okay? He's seeking to empty us because He's about to say some hard things in this sermon. He's going to say some things that are going to make you and me very uncomfortable. He is going to call us out. All of us. He's going to empty us intentionally because that's where the work always must begin. And this is just the beginning. Over the next few months... Jesus is going to get very personal with each of us. He's going to touch on some really uh, difficult, touchy, controversial subjects. He's going to do it to expose us with a standard that we could never keep. And He's going to do that not to shame us, but to save us. Because He loves us. Because we're His disciples. Because we're His Father's disciples. 
children. And so He says, happy are the unhappy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. And they shall be called sons of God. Amen. In much the same way, um, it is an important practice in the Christian church throughout all generations, in every tribe, people, language, and tongue, all who confess these things, all who profess the name of Jesus, we share a table. It is a very simple table. And I think we've all always made it really tiny, not just for practical reasons because it's easier to get it around, because it leaves you hungry, right? Because it's only representative of what it is that actually fills us, is Jesus. But we do it in the church regularly. Baptism happens once, but we do the Lord's Supper over and over and over again because we never stop being hungry. We never stop needing Him. And that's what it reminds us of. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed so that we might have the righteousness of God. We don't come to this table because we kept the Sermon on the Mount. We don't come to this table because we've done it all well. We come empty so that He can fill us. Amen? Now, while I was out this summer, we went back to um, a practice that we that we was one of my favorite things about Christ Fellowship is that um, you know COVID changed some things. We didn't do this for a while, but we're we're back to it. So the way we do the Lord's Supper here is I'm going to call you down in small groups in just a moment, and we will take around the table, and then we'll have a brief word of prayer, and then I'll have another group come up. Okay. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that for whatever reason or you can't get up here physically, we'll bring it to you. Um, just indicate that you need that. But um, we want to invite you. We want to we take the supper together as a church around the table in demonstration of our fellowship and our, our need of Christ together. So <clears throat> let me pray and ask God's blessing over this table. Lord Jesus, we thank You for um, this supper. We thank You for making us hungry. We pray that we would find You to be enough to satisfy that hunger. We pray that You would be at work in us to make us different from the world around us. Not arrogant or self-righteous, but not chasing after what the world offers, thinking that it's going to fill us. Because it's not. And so we pray that You would set this table apart now. Make it a means of grace for us, Your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus Christ, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks, He broke it and offered it to His disciples and said, This is My body, which is for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, He took the cup and offered it to them as well and said, This cup represents the new covenant which is in My blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it. All of it. Amen.
want to invite um, the first two rows on both sides. forgot to mention something very, very important. We also have real wine today as an option. So we do have grape juice. We also have real wine. When you're up here, I'll indicate which one's which. Okay. Uh, and that's, if you have questions about that, let me know later and I'll explain. This is
let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, again, we are grateful to you for bringing us here. We thank you for your means of grace and encourage our hearts. We pray that as we leave, uh, we would be filled in the knowledge that you uh, are enough, that your spirit is with us, and I pray that you would humble us and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.